everyone, and welcome back to the Garage Gym PT Podcast. Sitting with you, as always, is Lou and Dave. Uh, we hope you guys have been enjoying the episodes as we kind of come out each week with a little bit of something different with the strength conditioning principles uh, and then also the recovery principle uh, episode. But today, Dave and I are going to kind of switch it up a little bit. Um, I had been talking, or I guess not talking, I had been putting up a post about what you guys wanted to kind of hear a little bit more of. Uh, and actually, the top two that came up were what you can fix and maybe what to look for for your back squat. Uh, so today, Dave and I are going to hash that out. Yeah, can't wait. This should be once again a uh, a nice little conversational piece and hopefully give you guys some uh, modifiables and non-modifiables that you can actually fix. Yeah, so just kind of listing off things that I kind of look for. I'll, I'll just kind of keep it to like maybe a little bit of an outline and then we can go into more of those in depth. Um, but first of all, some different things that I look for. Uh, feet placement, uh, spinal position. Uh, do you initiate with a hinge or are you kind of a basically drop straight down kind of a person? Let the knees sure. do everything. Um, what is the the depth that you do squat to or can achieve? Um, what do your knees do? Kind of that that frontal plane look at. Well, you know, what are they going in and out? Um, where is your weight distribution at on your foot you know are you towards the toes are you back towards the heel maybe you're right in the midfoot and then last but not least what is your control and stability like um did i leave anything out dave no i think you're good in in another way just like you were saying is maybe look at this as like a joint by joint complex mm -hmm. um rather than like a totality we all know what a good versus a bad squat looks like but why is a squat bad? Um, even like another way to open this up too is before we go through this checklist, let's let's maybe talk about who has favorable anatomy for a back squat, right? So, you know, you, you go through like your your body types, and there's there's one particular one that's going to be very very good for squatting period and that's going to mm -hmm. be your long torso short femured person so this mm -hmm. is the person who probably their their squat looks similar to their deadlift uh and it's just because of your mechanical advantage guys like so this is non-modifiable you know somebody with this stature is just gonna naturally be able to produce much more force out of their squat yeah. And they're, they're going to be able to maintain a better position upright. So, I mean, they don't feel like they're going to, they try to maintain an upright position, like they're falling back off their, their heels there. Um, so yeah, you can have an anatomical, you know, preference. Um, but I mean, that's also why you have your coach to kind of look from the side and kind of see maybe a higher low bar position. And I mean, everyone should be able to do both. You just might not be able to load it as heavily compared to others. Um, Correct. So this, this person that has the shorter femur length is naturally going to perform prefer more of like the uh, the high bar position just because they're quad dominant by nature of their anatomy. So what mm -hmm. he said there, shifting your bar could be a way to like place some more like um, favorable levers for you. So if you're a if you're a long limbed person, you know shifting this to your posterior chain. It's probably exactly what you want to do if you want a higher total. Yes, correct. Um, 
so some of the first things I look for when I'm assessing someone's squat, um, I usually have them do about five to 10 repetitions. I'll usually start off watching the first five from the side, just so I can get an appreciation of, you know, what are their ankles doing? What are their knees doing? What are their hips doing? What, and then basically what is the spine doing up throughout the chain? Um, obviously if there's a limitation in ankle dorsiflexion, I guess, starting from the bottom, kind of working up, um, if they have that limited ankle dorsiflexion and you see them really push to the toes, um, you're going to get a little bit more quad activation in that. It's not going to be as fun on that patellar tendon. Um, and it's also going to make you have to bend a little bit more at the knee and the hip just to achieve depth. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's number one. Um, sure. Also real, real quick with this initial assessment, are you trying to do it unloaded or with load? Like just unloaded. From, like, I really like the loaded squat because mm-hmm. people's mechanics change with load. Correct. There's definitely a very good validity to assessing both, but I, mm-hmm. I, I typically do like some load just by nature of spinal compression and people do change. Mm-hmm. And like even having stiffness as somebody who's going to want to lift more load may reveal some things that like mm-hmm. an unloaded squat wouldn't and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I look at both. I usually start off unloaded just to kind of get that appreciation without any kind of external cues. How do they move their own body? And sure. then I'll add load to it. Um, but then I, once I kind of see what the ankles do, I'll move up. Yeah. I think it gives probably hip or knee preference. If you're just doing mm-hmm. like a basic squat assessment. I, yeah. I can agree with that. Um, Knees usually aren't really the the issue for most people when they squat. Usually the knee, they'll have full motion. They'll have quote-unquote knee pain. Um, but, like, I'll be able to see, like, you know, they have full motion. It's not bad. Maybe a little bit of tightness through the hip flexors. But, I mean, I mean, in particular the rectus femoris. But at the same time, like, that's not usually a big issue. Um, but then kind of going up into the, the hip a little bit more, the hinge pattern. Most people that I've seen who have more of a tendency to go to the toes kind of start their squat going straight down with like minimal hip hinge. Um, Yeah. I, I I really do believe in my heart of hearts, hip mobility is never the issue. Mm -hmm. Like I am far more likely to blame ankle mobility than I am at the hip. I agree. And then I think that preferential pattern is just by nature of leverage more yeah. than like anything else. Um, I, almost, I almost see it as more of like an issue in like coordinating the hip hinge to like load that because they want to avoid maybe like if you've had a history of back pain, for example, sometimes people will try to maintain that as high as possible. And so then they try to extend more through the spine as opposed to actually hinging through the hip, which the hip hinge is there to kind of help you load the glutes and the hammies loading that posterior chain. Um, and sometimes I think they try to maintain too much of an upright torso and it becomes like an anterior tilt instead of an actual hip hinge. Yeah. And, it, and I, and I do think you want to default towards your stronger muscle mass. Mm-hmm. So obviously like your leverages are going to tell you what's appropriate for you. Yeah. So in this in this scenario, I think the person that's going to want to go quads first probably has that longer torso, so they're more 
predisposed towards a quote unquote back injury if they get out of position. Whereas yeah. like the longer limb lifter is going to want to default more towards your low back glutes and hamstrings to kind of almost create a um, good morning arc out of the bottom. Yeah. The so stripper pole. Kind of. And it's, it's probably just preference person to person more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I think once I kind of have the appreciation of kind of seeing what the ankles do, what the hip does, are they stabilizing through their core? Are they maintaining pelvic position? Um, I'll usually go from the front for maybe a few reps and then also from behind just so I can kind of see, you know, one, how, how wide are there, is their stance? Um, are we getting a knee cave, if any at all? Um, usually more of the athletes don't necessarily have a pretty, like, you know, knee, pretty big knee cave. But, I mean, once in a while you get that high school athlete who's still developing and they get it, but it's not, like, horrible. Um, and I really do think also, people just not wearing correct shoes. Like squatting when, brooks. <laughs> like, when we talk about valgus, like, for the longest time, our whole profession has always wanted to blame glute mead. But I, mm-hmm. I've observed it's much more of a, of a foot collapse than it is anything else. I agree. If you can get a flat foot on the ground and you have adequate grip and you can kind of splay your, your toes just like you would your hand, I find that valgus is actually minimal relative to somebody who's basically binding their feet in these really tight running shoes. Um, not to shit on any brands, but Nike's pretty notorious for having a terrible toe box. Brooks, I agree. Hoka's. If you're if you're squatting in cushioned shoes, I'm probably talking to you. Yeah. So if you have running shoes on and you're squatting and you're wondering why you're you have like a, basically a a whip from your knees out of the bottom of your squat, this is problem one A to address. Yeah, I agree. Like trying to squat on a balance, like um balance foam pad like it makes it a lot harder than what it needs to be you give yourself that hard stable base to kind of push from makes things a lot easier um i think also if you have an elevated heel it has a hard sole and Mm -hmm. those would be like your olympic weightlifting shoes Uh, so don't elevate yourself on a styrofoam pad and expect a good result elevate yourself in stability to help your dorsiflexion yep i say and then i mean just because you elevate the heel also doesn't mean you shouldn't be working on dorsiflexion i mean you can always continue to work on that and reducing the level of incline that you need um i think that's also an important thing because you see people who almost become like too reliant on the lifters and then when you don't have them then all of a sudden in like a metcon things kind of go out the way and it's like oh that's not good uh, yeah, so don't, don't just leave it to the lifters. lifters. <laughs> this is you. So yes. You, you should ideally want to have this perfect acid squat in something like Converse or a minimal heel drop or, you know, zero shoes. Yeah. Because then the lifter will just amplify your range of motion. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, obviously, if you have a wide or narrow stance, there's that. Uh, 
but then also looking at the degree of like like external rotation that you kind of start yourself in are your toes straight on are your toes turned out a little bit are you really turned out a little bit um that can kind of play into it sometimes people almost they they hear they need to turn their feet out and they go excessively and then when they go down to the bottom of the hole their knees just fall right in and then they get that wicked pinch in the front of the hip it's like you make those small little adjustments and you can help alleviate that um obviously everyone's going to have a different squat interesting Mm -hmm. right so we we can't observe hip anatomy right so we don't we don't know like how far you have what's called like femoral antiversion or retroversion and this Mm -hmm. is where personal preference plays a very big piece in the squat a lot of times people default to the most comfortable stance um but you know depending on your program there if we take it back to powerlifting and like the conjugate methodology, like they'll have you do ultra wide box squats. All right. So this looks very different for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And you should yeah. probably try to tax yourself in all these end ranges. So that way you're more pliable and you have a more dynamic squat no matter what. Yeah. I think you need to find what works best for you. And sometimes that might take a few adjustments, either if it's at the feet or maybe even, um, really, I honestly think the feet are one of the biggest implicators for modification in the squat, turning it out, making sure you're on a rigid platform. Like you need to be instead of squatting on a foam pad, uh, can you dorsiflex in your ankle or can you essentially let the tibia advance over the, the tile curl joint? I mean, if you don't have that, Everything else above the chain has to move more. And that usually implicates an overuse. Correct. And an irritation. Yeah, I think I think my my favorite thing and what you're talking about here is people with anterior hip pain that have terrible dorsiflexion. Yes. Right. So this is exactly what you're what you're speaking towards here. So they if you have a pinch at the front of your hip when you get to the bottom of a squat. You do not need to do hip mobility. You probably need to look at your foot and ankle as well as your glute strength. Yes. So all of the banded stuff you're doing, your hip is likely useless compared to the low-hanging fruit that you have at your feet. Right? So your your feet dictate your your leverage a lot more than your hip mobility does. So if you want a quote-unquote ass-to-grass squat, your hips don't dictate that, your ankles do. Correct. I think finding out what like your ankle joint mobility is and then also looking at soleus flexibility can be a big thing for people. More, I, th- I feel like more soleus flexibility in younger athletes as opposed to older athletes who potentially may have more of the stiffer ankle joint or those of you who have sprained your ankles may have a little bit more of a stiffer ankle joint. So like looking into those. And seeing, you know, if you were to go from a kneeling position and maybe go, what do you think, like maybe one or two inches away from the wall and see if you can bring your knee to the wall without your heel popping up, uh, I'd say even four inches away from the wall at the max for getting like ass to grass depth um, so that you can actually get knee to wall shows clear and basically, I would say clear and clean without like foot dropping in ankle dorsiflexion to achieve depth for the squat. That's one of my big indicators that I've found. Um, and and I mean, it's I paid off. Just to, to maximize it. Yes. Or just have it available. 
Um, and controlled. Right. And we're specifically talking about soleus because your knee is in a flexed position, guys. So, and even for you guys going through uh, puberty to just hit a growth spurt, like this is why it's like super integral for you is because your tendons are outgrowing your muscle bellies because of puberty. Mm -hmm. So trying to like work on this in a dynamic effort, not just the stretching effort is something I would, I, I wish I had when I was growing up. Same, <laughs> same. I think that's another good point is that, um, you know, controlled ankle dorsiflexion in a squat position. Um, obviously there's a lot of knee bending. So like I'll work my, some of my patients anterior tibs the anterior tibialis uh, in multiple positions. Cause I know like the knees over toes guy has popularized like a straight knee ankle dorsiflexion. I'll even have them try to maintain a rigid arch while pulling their feet up while in a, maybe a half squat and just kind of getting used to that kind of used to the doming and pulling up because then after that, I have them rock back forward and maintaining that foot position. And I'll have them try to lower into that depth. And if your foot collapses, obviously, maybe we need to work on foot intrinsic uh, strengthening, or we need to work on anterior tip strength, or maybe we need to work more on just the joint mobility. Like there's a lot of different factors that we could like point point and look for them individually. Um, sure. And maybe you just need to get out of shoes. Yeah. yeah get out, honestly, squat out of your shoes and watch how different it is compared to being in your shoes. Yeah, maybe, maybe your arch just sucks. Like yeah. That. Which the... The tibialis raises do help this indirectly because of their attachment point kind of around the foot. So they help pull up the arch a little bit, especially like as you get that eccentric load, mm -hmm. which is why you are saying stress this in straight and bent knee the same way you want to with your calf. Bingo. Because uh, the mechanics change straight to bent. Bingo. I think yeah. once you guys can kind of get those down, you can kind of look. I mean, obviously, record your squat and tag us in it if you want. I mean, do it, like, from the side and do it from the back or the front and then tag us in it. And, like, we'll maybe use you guys as an example if you want. Sure. I mean, that'd be, be pretty cool to do, you know, essentially whatever squat you does and just kind of give a couple of technique strategies and possibly some treatment to fix it. Um, I, I think a joint that we do need to touch on is the knee. Yes. And I think we need to, we need to break the mold of going below 90 is unhealthy. Yes. So I think flat out, we just need to shoot this thing right in the foot and be done with it. Mm -hmm. If you can do it, do it. Right. Um, there's a numerator of reasons, but the biggest one is when you compare a squatting knee that goes below 90 versus, you know, any other version of it, the cartilage, the ligaments, uh, they're all thicker and they're more resilient. Yep. So I think we've even talked about this in the past, like where they're saying shear forces go up when you bend over in the spine. Same thing happens at your knee, but why do you not want the shear forces that are going to be, you know, in your day-to-day -day life, in your competition, 
the expectation of your needs should be to be resilient, not fragile. So the more stress Bingo. you can put on it under load with good form, going through full range of motion is obviously going to build a robust knee, tendon, ligament system versus somebody who doesn't. I agree with that. Being able to tolerate those forces comes from a gradual exposure, not you don't train it at all because someone tells you that it's the devil and then you actually have to be in that position in game and then that's when the <laughs> the devil's in the details. Uh, right. <clears throat> it'll get you. I.e., imagine you're in running athletics and you get stuck in the hole as a running back, a wide receiver. Uh, the base slips on you as like you're running and then you don't have this below 90 degree stability, this is where problems probably enter the knee joint. But if you're training them under load and you have a robust system outside of like the muscle mass, you're much less likely to get injured. Correct. I'm trying to think. So I think one thing that kind of got overhyped um, over the last, I'm trying to think, maybe, maybe the last four or five years was just the use of an incline wedge for all squats. Like if you don't have the ankle dorsiflexion, put them on an incline and you should just, just have them do that at all times. Don't even worry about the ankle mobility. It's like, in most athletics, yes, that I, I could see training on an incline would be advantageous, especially because a lot of the sports that require speed, football, uh, basketball, you're on your toes quite often throughout the game. I mean, if you get caught on your heels, not a great thing. However, there are moments where that foot will be planted on the ground. And if you do not have the ankle mobility and you get that shift forward, that quick, abrupt shift, when that foot is on the ground and it's flat and you don't have the ankle dorsiflexion, again, that force gets translated up the chain. So I think you need to find where the balance is with the incline, the lifters, the incline wedge, whatever you're doing with your mobility training. Because otherwise, I think it just gets lost. Sure. So it's super advantageous if you want to build quad strength. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think we can both probably argue that the vast majority of injuries happen because your posterior chain isn't conditioned. Mm -hmm. uh, you know maybe not specific to the knee in particular but as far as like the amount of like gross muscular injuries and vast majority of what you see show up clinically it, it, it's usually a weak link in the posterior chain right so if you're overtraining yeah. the stuff in the front and you're neglecting the stuff that actually has postural components to it you know, glutes, hamstrings, low back, upper back, scaps, et cetera, you're, you're, you're kind of asking for something bad to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that like, this isn't good. Like, I mean, I, I love that incline squat for somebody that has like quad tendonitis and I'm trying to build their tolerance to deep knee flexion mm -hmm. and really bring up their quads. Uh, but it's not the only way. I agree. It, I think one is. of the things I've... Oh, what were you going to say? Finish your thought. 
yeah, it's like in this situation, I think it's very similar to the person that always does a deadlift with a, with a belt and that you're relying mm -hmm. on something artificial to give you the stability or the depth to hit it. Bingo. Thank you. I agree with that. I also think that when people then eventually do like, like squatters who have had like lower back pain uh, and they have severely limited angle dorsiflexion, when you have to squat and your dorsiflexion gets taken up to its, its maximum amount, what it can tolerate before your heels come up. Um, and then your knee has to bend excessively and you go through excessive hip flexion. Your hip only has so much available range before eventually you get that like drastic butt wink, right? Where you hit the bottom of the hole and you have that, I mean, neutral in a range, right? But eventually you go from that excessive neutral to lumbar flexion if you can control it, great. I mean, I'm not going to demonize the butt wink because I mean, a little bit's fine, but like right. These it's are that outside of standard deviation butt winks. Yes. Thank you. And that, that excessive amount under load, it, it will not be pretty. So that's why I, I encourage people continue to work on your ankle dorsiflexion that that joint mobility will help alleviate even back pain sometimes. I mean, I've had that happen with three or four patients where you look at hips and hips are clean. And you go down to the ankles and they can't even do an inch or two away from the wall on a closed ankle dorsiflexion test. We work on the ankle dorsiflexion, back pain is reduced quite a bit, actually. So I think that is always needing to be looked at, no matter what. Sure. And um, as far as like up chain, guys, like your, your upper back has a ton ton of like play in this too mm -hmm. right so if, if if you get to the bottom of the squat and then you're 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 capsizing forward it's not your lower half that's the issue it's probably your upper back and like your spinal erector so there's there's a number of other reasons as to why you could be breaking down even from like yeah. a load level, you know, <clears throat> front squat's probably the best place to like actually observe this. If you're the person who gets to the bottom and you come up basically like you're pulling a deadlift off the ground and then you, you look like a dog taking a poop, your upper <laughs> back's very weak. For lack of a better way to say it. That's a good example. That's a good example. That's yeah. a good example. Yeah. No, I agree right. with that. So like, you know, in, in some of these scenarios too, guys, is it literally are your spinal erectors strong enough to tolerate the weight and not get pushed forward? So that stripper fault mm -hmm. phenomenon that we were talking about, like where your hips shoot up, right? That could be two spots right like obviously we're blaming quad strength as one but two you know if, if you're pitched forward because your upper back can't stabilize the load where else has it got to go except for forward so then you're going to rely on low back but hamstrings and try to good morning it out of the bottom mm -hmm. i agree so guys what i implore you to do is if you want uh, record your squat from the side, from the front, and from the back. 
uh, put it on your story, post it, whatever you want to do, uh, tag us in it and we'll break it down. All right. Um, and if we're, if we're local, like a, like a 45 degree angle. Yep. At a minimum. Yep. Cause then we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at it and we'll maybe even make a little bit of like a, a write up on it that we guys can kind of see what we would see, um, and learn a little something from it too. Uh, Anything else you wanted to add it on squats today, Dave? Uh, not really. I, I, I guess like the closing thing would be, guys, get a bunch of reps in at sub-maximal load, so that way when you start loading, you have a better pattern programmed. Right, the vast majority of our learning takes place within that fifty to seventy percent category, not the eighty to ninety to hundred percent category. So. Get your reps in and just get better at the actual pattern first. Mm-hmm. Let's say don't feed dysfunction. Yep. Don't feed dysfunction. All right, guys. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed today's discussion. Um, we might talk a little bit more on deadlifting next time and talk a little bit more. I know we didn't really touch on it too much today, um, but quote unquote neutral spine. <laughs> yeah yeah and even like how certain squats can help your deadlift and vice versa might be kind of a cool thing to include at the end of that as well i agree that'll be good um but we'll see you guys next time